Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is trade, a subject not normally thought of as relating to constitutional issues. However, those issues can in fact be very important, most obviously when considering the ongoing trade negotiations between Britain and the European Union. My name's John Hudson, and with me I have Jenny Dunsmore, Jim Gallagher, and Stephen Gethins. Jenny Dunmore works at the European Parliament, where she's a political advisor on international trade. Jim Gallagher is a former civil servant who headed the Scottish Justice Department. He was the UK government's most senior advisor on devolution and other constitutional issues, working in the Cabinet Office and the Number 10 Policy Unit under Gordon Brown. Stephen Gethins has worked in the NGO sector, specialising in peace building, arms control and democracy in the Caucasus and the Balkans regions. He's been an MP at Westminster and the Scottish National Party's front bench spokesman for international affairs and Europe. First of all, Jenny, could you tell us something about your personal involvement in this issue? Yes, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Um, I've worked in the European Parliament for 11 years on trade and development policy. I previously worked for the Scottish Labour MEP David Martin and for the last four and a half years I've been political advisor for the Socialist and Democrat group, which is the second largest political group in the European Parliament made up of centre-left MEPs, which did include Scottish Labour until the beginning of this year. So my job is to advise the members who sit on the International Trade Committee. Thanks very much. Could you outline to us then the current situation with regard to our subject today and the central issues involved? Yes, so in the European Union, uh, the common commercial policy, trade policy, is an exclusive competence of the EU, unlike many policy areas which have a shared level of competence between the EU level and the member state level, trade is one which is exclusively dealt with by the EU. The member states empower the Commission to act on its behalf and the Commission is empowered to negotiate free trade agreements and uh, international investment agreements. So the EU is one customs area, it has one common external tariff and we have one single market. And because of that, there are a lot of constitutional issues which arise with how we govern trade policy and how those multi-level areas of government interact in order to allow the Commission to speak with one voice, as the European Union does. I think maybe the other thing to say about uh, the governance of trade policy is that it has shifted over the last 15 years, more or less. While previously a lot of the focus of trade policy was at the multilateral level, we've seen an impasse at the WTO, uh, where there's been blockages in trying to progress with multilateral level agreements. And so there's been a much greater focus on bilateral agreements since around 2006, which was when Peter Mandelson was uh, European Commissioner for Trade. The EU launched a Global Europe strategy, which was intended to address the fact that because of this impasse, there had been no progress on trade and that the EU was going to pursue more bilateral and plurilateral agreements on uh, trade and investment. And what that has meant is that the constitutional setup within the EU has had to adapt to how we deal with these negotiations and the conclusion of free trade agreements. Maybe just also briefly on the UK, because I know that's a a particularly salient issue at the moment on trade. 
the UK has quite an unprecedented opportunity now to develop its own trade policy. We don't see very often a country able to effectively start from scratch and how they want their trade policy to look and what they want the constitutional oversight of that policy to be. Trade did feature quite prominently in the in the Vote Leave campaign. I would say to the surprise of many people who worked in trade, we didn't see it as a particularly strong angle for that debate, but nonetheless, it was a very strong emotive argument uh, about the UK taking its seat at the WTO and trade policy becoming uh, one of the new areas in which the UK could legislate and act alone. And so we're keen to see what's going to come of that because trade policy is a balance between regulatory sovereignty and trade liberalisation. And we're keen to see where the UK finds that balance. Jim, would you like to develop that point, partly about this issue of the relationship and possibly tension between the constitutional, the political and the economic? Yes, uh, trade policy is a very interesting area uh, in that we think of it as largely an economic matter. We, we, we assume that this is essentially David Ricardo and Adam Smith uh, coming into their own. But what we're doing here is maximising utility, economic benefit for everyone uh, by enabling the free market to get all sorts of uh, benefits to individuals. And there's a lot of truth in that. And one of the, the EU's great successes has been that it has created a very large market in which goods and services have been traded freely. Uh, if you leave the EU, you need a new relationship. And that new relationship has to be governed, first of all, by the EU's internal order. And it's, the EU's never had to do a deal of this complexity and nearness uh, before, but also with the UK's internal order, which, of course, has never had to think about trade since before 1972. So while uh, the UK might well simply say, well, we'll have a single common internal tariff, all the constitutional issues arise because trade isn't just about tariffs. It's about quotas, how much you can trade, but even more important, it's about what you can trade, what you can sell. So people use the words single market as if it's just a place. But actually, the single market is a set of rules about what can be sold and what can be traded and how it can be sold and traded in order to maximise the absence non-tariff barriers, not tariff barriers. And here in the UK, of course, that set of rules has been taken for granted for a long time, and we're having to reconstruct who's in charge of it. Is it just the government, as the government would like to think? Is it Parliament? Or is it, of course, all the legislators in the UK who have a say in the matter? So for that reason, this has become a real constitutional complication, let's say. Stephen, do you want to pick up on this issue about how governance and trade and constitutional issues intersect so closely? Yeah, I think, and it's really interesting listening to Jennifer and Jim there, constitutional trade politics, we, we, we've been given a real crash course in constitutionalism and trade over the past four years with Brexit, where it's been at the absolute heart of it and a lot of us. Um, I've had to do an awful lot of reading up very, very, very quickly. I was struck, Jim said, of course, a single market's a set of rules that we all agree to, and he's right. But the same could go for trade. It's a, it's a set of rules that different states and, and even within states sign up to. And 
within the United Kingdom, one thing that's happened over the past 40 years is just as the EU that the UK is leaving is not the same organisation as the one that was joined in the 1970s, so too is the United Kingdom not the same United Kingdom that joined the EEC back in the 1970s. And you now have that devolution settlement that is overlying and, um, and, and interacts with trade policy. So when the interna- internal market bill is published and we, and, we, and we get to grips with whatever's in that, it will have a constitutional impact. What is the role of the Scottish Parliament in terms of um, food and drink policy? What's the role of the Welsh Assembly? And critically, how does the, North, uh, the Good Friday Agreement interact with all of this as well? And then, of course, today we saw that the complexity has made its way into the House of Commons again at, at, at our time of broadcasting. And it's so difficult to keep up with these things as they change day by day, when the UK government's even talking about breaking international law as well. So I think that constitutionalism and trade are not only a really interesting topic for us all to discuss, but a really current one as well. A lot of what is going on at the moment in day-to-day unseen ways is done by official negotiators. I'm wondering where the constitutional position of these people are. Do they have officially delegated powers or are they simply representatives of the executive or are the complexities to this? Probably a question to start with Jim. Well, trade negotiators are public officials, and in the UK settlement, they are accountable to ministers and they represent ministers. Uh, They're not plenipotentiaries, they're not people empowered to do deals on their own account. Uh, And in that sense, their position is quite straightforward. I used to be a civil servant and I knew that it was what my minister wanted that was my job to achieve in any negotiation, whether a trade one or not. Uh, Some of the the difficulties arise here, of course, because it's the job of ministers to say what they want, but it's the job of officials to tell them what they can and can't get. Uh, and we have seen real difficulties throughout the Brexit process when uh, officials give unwelcome news uh, back to their political masters and they find that they are without a job. Uh, the most uh, earliest example of this was the EU, uh, the UK's EU representative, who predicted pretty accurately what the EU's approach to Brexit would be, and that was very unwelcome news. So there's that constitutional aspect, the relationship between ministers and officials. There's also the constitutional aspect of the relationship between ministers and parliament. And we've seen uh, another of these constitutional constraints on power, the role of parliament, is something which is getting in the way of the government. So they tried to prorogue parliament And interestingly enough, it was the courts who told them that they couldn't do that. And as Stephen said, there's also a potential conflict between the central government in the UK and the default administrations in Parliament. Though actually, that one's probably simpler than all the other ones. Jeremy, could you pick up on this, possibly take it from the opposite direction and looking at it from the point of view of the EU side of negotiations within this? and talk in a way, as Jim has done, about the British delegation or the role of negotiators and whether that is the same within the European context as the British or whether there are differences. 
Yes, as Jim said, uh, the negotiators are empowered by, in this case, the, the European Commission and the Council to negotiate. So they do so with a mandate. But the, the job of negotiators, I think, is getting much more difficult as trade policy expands. Firstly, because what is included in trade agreements has expanded enormously. So what was previously quite a technocratic, technical exercise, largely focused on tariffs, tariff rate quotas, um, maybe some technical barriers, really now covers, trade agreements cover everything really from um, agriculture and food safety standards, data protection, labour rights. So negotiators, there has to be an army of negotiators who are experts in all of these fields, as well as being able to pull the entire trade deal together. So I think that's one of the areas that they are having to be more knowledgeable and more flexible. But as Jim said, they take their mandate in the European system, the negotiators take their mandate directly from the written mandate, the negotiating directives, which is adopted by the Council. So it's the member states who have to agree amongst themselves what the mandate is for a trade agreement. And that's given to them by the Commission in order to do their job. What they have to understand increasingly is how political these elements are, because naturally trade negotiations involve compromise. And the negotiators have to understand which elements are extremely politically sensitive, either within the European Parliament, within the Council, at the subnational level, and where they can find that compromise amongst the multilateral and the very political elements. So it's a difficult job, but it's one in which the constitutional oversight and the responsibility of the negotiators to follow the steps of the mandate is really important. This question that's arising about where negotiators get their powers from and the in the context of treaty negotiations seems to me to expose one of the areas of tension certainly within the UK constitution probably within constitutional arrangements more widely which is the prevalence of executive power in areas of foreign policy and in treaty making. I was wondering starting with Jenny and then probably Stephen will want to pick this up what's the role of specific role of legislatures within these sorts of process as opposed to the role of the executive and their nominees in european trade policy the role of the legislature which is in this case the european parliament it's expanded quite a lot with treaty revisions uh, over trade policy so there's really two elements that the parliament has a role in when it comes to trade one is in the negotiation of free trade agreements and the other is the adopting of trade related legislation. So on the negotiating, negotiating of trade agreements, at the same time as the member states and the council are adopting this formal mandate to give to the commission and the negotiators, the European Parliament is also adopting a resolution to feed into that process, which is at that stage, the priorities and the concerns of the legislature with regards to the negotiations. And that's important because although it doesn't have any formal input at that stage, it's very much taken on the radar of the Commission and the Member States because at the end of the process, the European Parliament has a consent vote to say yes or no on the agreement. And so we have at the beginning this document which we can consistently say to the negotiators throughout the process, if these important elements are not met, we may not approve the trade agreement. And we've done that in 2012. We rejected uh, the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement because it simply did not match what the Parliament thought were the key priorities. So there's that element of it. There's also the element of the European Parliament being the democratic body of the Union, being the floor to which both the executive, in this case the Commission and the member states, come to debate, 
to be held to account to answer questions under scrutiny from members, which is on behalf of the European public, and to do so publicly. And we are the only body which undertakes these discussions and the scrutiny of trade negotiations as they go through publicly. There's also a role for the Parliament in discussions and negotiations with its counterparts, with the Parliament of the third country that we are negotiating a trade agreement with. And those can really help to complement the discussions, particularly if they get blocked or if they're dealing with sensitive issues at the level of the executives. Now, sometimes the parliamentary dialogue with its counterpart is to further an issue which is a key concern for the European Union. And it helps to add an extra layer of pressure from the EU side to try and achieve our objectives. But other times we don't agree with the European Commission. We don't agree with what the, the mandate that they've been given. This is where it becomes more political in the legislature. And so we can work with our counterparts in third countries to try and put respective pressure on both negotiators to say you really have to take into account that we are demanding, for example, increased transparency or increased safeguards on food safety, which both sides can put, uh, put pressure on. And then when it comes to trade legislation, the European Parliament is a, a co-legislator with the Council. So the Commission publishes legislation, whether that's on rules and regulations around the export of goods that might be considered at risk for use of torture or controls on inward investment. Uh, and it's the role of the Parliament and the Council who work together equally, line by line, to redraft and negotiate that legislation. Stephen, do you want to pick that up from the point of view of someone who's been involved in international affairs within the Westminster Parliament? Yeah, and it's it's fascinating speaking to to Jennifer, and I, I could have done with getting Jennifer into the House of Commons from day one of Brexit, in fact, before then as well, to have set things out so nicely and clearly to everybody. One of the big challenges that I think we have in politics and why these conversations are so useful, and I know some of the conversations that I've had with Jim and with others in the past, is in politics, it's important to disagree with each other and that's fine. But what you really need to do is try and understand one another. You can disagree, that's okay, but try and understand the other person. And what I found throughout the Brexit process is that especially, I'm afraid to say, from a UK perspective, there was a, a huge lack of understanding within the UK Parliament and elements of the UK government, especially at a political level, about the European Union. Now, one of these areas, and you talk about the role of legislators versus the executive, the role of parliamentarians and legislators, the role of the European Parliament is quite distinct from the House of Commons, for example. They're, they're entirely different beasts. They might carry similar name. They might both be parliament with parliamentarians, but they have very different roles and outlooks. And I remember going to see Michel Barnier on a couple of occasions with on my own and with other parliamentarians. And the first thing he said to us, to be fair, and it was the right thing to do, was he said, I'm here to listen. I'm here to take on board your views and to get as wide as possible um, a view of what's going on in the UK. But I negotiate with states. I negotiate with the UK as, as was then a member state. And I take my orders from the 27 member states. So we had to understand as parliamentarians that it was our job to try and vote and influence the government in London. But Michel Barnier's job was to listen to his member states and also to speak to the European Parliament as well. And that's why when you saw things like newspaper headlines calling for Michel Barnier to do X, Y and Z, Michel Barnier cannot do X, Y and Z without the consent of the democratically elected states throughout the rest of Europe. So when the rubber hit the road, I don't think we quite understood it. 
and why this difference between if you like with the role of legislators in different places is so important is that trade deals and trade agreements take years and years and that's for many many reasons but one of the main reasons is that these things are complex and you need to get lots of different lots of different sign-offs for your trade deal you know with with the example and um I hope I've not got this wrong with somebody like Jennifer being in on this as well, and I hope she'll correct me. But when Waluni sort of managed to um, hold up the, the free trade agreement with Canada because the Belgian system required that Waluni in Flanders and Brussels signed off on that trade agreement. So even though all the other parliaments that had to sign off on it had done so, one could hold it up. These things take time. And one of my great fears is because of this mixture between politics and trade that you now have is that if we've got a 15th of October deadline for any kind of trade deal being signed off with the best will in the world, that is exceptionally difficult given given how difficult these things are. And so politics and trade deals usually don't mix until the very end, but unfortunately they've been there since the very start. Jim, we're talking about the legislature part in various of these podcasts about providing scrutiny for the uh, executive, constraint on the executive. Are there any other elements of constraint on the executive, particularly the, in the UK, in terms of just pursuing their particular political interests, or are they relatively free of any constraint? The UK uh, executive is in some ways less constrained than executives in other countries because the UK tradition has always been of a powerful executive. And it's extraordinary when you think about it, that we still talk of exercising the royal prerogative, particularly in relation to uh, foreign affairs. But it is constrained. It's, it is constrained by Parliament, uh, not least because it, the big thing is that it depends on the, the authority of Parliament to stay a government at all. But also at a purely technical level, a new treaty cannot be ratified until Parliament has the opportunity to debate it. This is the so-called Ponson Bureau, for those of you who are uh, real anoraks of parliamentary procedure. And uh, when I worked for Gordon Brown more than 20 years ago, at the beginning of his prime ministership, one of the things we did was give statutory effect to the Ponson Bureau. I may say we get very little thanks for it. And it's quite interesting that in the Brexit debate, the distrust between Parliament and the executive caused special legislation to be enacted, which required parliamentary votes on aspects of the plans uh, to leave the EU. So there are constraints, that kind of a constraint on the executive. And there is also the constraint of distributed power inside the UK. As Stephen said earlier, uh, when the UK joined, it joined as a unitary state and things were, although they seemed complex at the time, actually relatively simple. Now that power is distributed across the UK, understandably enough, the devolved bodies who think they're responsible for things like agriculture uh, or uh, for health or for some aspects of economic development, I think they should have a say in the matter. And so they should. And that's a, that ought to be a constraint on the executive. But we need, to be, we need to be clear in the end about what the devolution settlements do and don't do in this area. There's an obligation on the UK government to involve the devolved uh, administrations and the devolved parliaments, but there isn't an obligation on them to do what they say. And the devolution settlements all contain powers in the end for the central government of the UK 
to say that if it has entered into an international treaty, the devolved administrations can't actually prevent it being put into effect. This was all put in in 1999 when it didn't seem to matter very much, because of course in 1999 the devolved administrations were prevented by their very nature from breaching European law. Well, there are more clumsy mechanisms which prevent them uh, from breaching whatever ends up replacing those treaty obligations. It would be much better if that were all negotiated, but that's the constitutional settlement we do have. Yes, I've been wondering throughout whether the complexities of some of the constitutional issues and also the room for some of the room for politics to enter into this is caused by this mixture of levels, particularly of legislatures, subnational, national, supranational. Stephen, do you want to start on and talk about that from the point of view, perhaps particularly of the subnational units again, and then hear from Jenny again, looking at it from the European Parliament point of view? Yeah, I was listening to, I think it was Anne and Menon and, and, and other, other academics who were talking about, in very blunt terms, saying you can't have an independent trade policy and this devolution settlement in the sense that it's not, as, as, as Jim rightly points out, it is not the same UK that joined the EU that is now leaving. And on the on and, and, and Jim's right with Westminster having authority on this with the EU withdrawal agreement, consent was refused by the devolved administrations, but didn't make the blindest bit of difference in the end. Now that's where it becomes a political problem as well, because if you have a directly elected Scottish Parliament, you have a directly elected Welsh Assembly. And you have, uh, and, and, and obviously you've got the, the Northern Ireland executive with its exceptionally careful makeup and, and, and the restrictions that are contained within the Good Friday Agreement. That delivers political sensitivities. So what do you do? Do you, if, if the UK government centralises, you've got a political problem, because of course Scotland and Northern Ireland voted against leaving the, the European Union. Do you try and find a way of, of reaching compromise around it. It's probably a bit late now, unless there's some backtracking. And also there's the, the, there is only a political solution. As I see it, there's only a political solution because you don't have the same frameworks in place in the United Kingdom as you do say in Germany, even Spain or Italy or Belgium, of course, in terms of um, how the centre interacts with, with the sub-state actors within it. We just don't have it. And as Jim said, we do have we do have these mechanisms such as the GMC, the Joint Ministerial Committee, but they are merely consultative and they don't have to meet. And unlike the European institutions, we don't really have a dispute mechanism between these different bits as well. So there's a, a hole in the constitutional status that I think Brexit has blown wide open at the moment. I mean, you saw the constitutional problems that we had trying to figure out could Parliament sit? What was a royal prerogative? What were Henry VIII powers? We're going right the way back. Um, and I remember the Speaker even using 17th century precedent in some of his rulings as well. So what the trade debate has done here and what others may incorrectly assume to be um, a very dull and dry issue isn't a dull and dry issue at the moment because it goes to the very heart of the constitutional makeup of the United Kingdom and the rules that govern our everyday lives. And I think that's really been exposed over the past few years. And just as we try and understand that, parliamentarians weren't even beginning to understand 
how the EU operated, which in fairness to the EU, it operates, it's all set out in treaty. Jenny, are there similar constitutional tensions, fissures being uh, exposed within the EU, or as Stephen is really implying, things are working better constitutionally within that setup than they are within the current UK setup? I would agree that thing, the setup in the EU is working better than it is in the UK, which is probably not surprising because we have had quite a lot of experience now in formulating the constitutional settlement in the EU that facilitates, when it comes to trade, facilitates FTA negotiations. The UK is, I hope, is still relatively near the beginning of finding this settlement because it doesn't look like the status quo is an option for the way in which trade policy and trade uh, deals would be negotiated and, and ratified. What you very often hear, particularly from trade negotiators or, or people who work in pure trade policy, is that they will lament the increasing involvement of politics in trade policy. They will see that as something which is constraining the ability to negotiate highly effective trade agreements as quickly as possible. But that is unavoidable. Trade agreements are incredibly political by nature. And actually, I would say that it's been to the detriment of our trade policy that it took politics a while to catch up. And we saw uh, with the adoption of the Lisbon Treaty in 2009, when the European Parliament's powers over trade policy increased, there was an enormous shift in interest. The, the transparency rules, which we forced to come into effect, have completely changed the way that the Commission negotiates trade policy. And it's all been for the better. I would argue even the Commission would grudgingly admit that it has definitely helped them in their negotiations. And it's empowered them to be more forceful in the negotiations, which they're doing with a greater um, support behind them in the EU. The EU-UK negotiations are completely unique. And so I think people in the UK should be careful that they don't extrapolate too much what they see happening in these negotiations as what future trade agreements might look like. Because the UK is putting up barriers where trade agreements always bring them down. And there is a deadline. We are working to a very tight deadline in these negotiations, which also don't normally exist in free trade agreements. There's no cutoff point. We will negotiate until we reach a good deal. And sometimes that can take a decade. And uh, if, the, if the conditions are not there to sign a trade agreement, then it won't be signed. This is a very unique situation in which we are um, approaching a deadline. So that definitely affects the way that negotiations are being conducted. And I should point out from the Parliament perspective, the reason that October is the deadline is that we need time to see the final agreement. We'd like to see it in 24 languages and we'd need enough time to scrutinise every single page, consult with stakeholders, do our job, which the European Parliament, I have to say, takes very seriously when it comes to trade policy. So there is a process that, that cannot be sped up too much, uh, which is why we're operating like that. In terms of negotiators and the, the multi-level challenges in the UK, Yes, third parties, when they negotiate with the UK, when they currently negotiate with the EU, they do so speaking to the interlocutor, which is empowered, which has the authority to negotiate these trade agreements. So that is the European Commission and it will be the UK government. And those are the only interlocutors that they can deal with. They do so understanding that both sides are doing it in good faith that both sides are negotiating on something which they've been empowered to do so, that they've undertaken all the necessary constitutional and political checks inside their domestic territory in order to be sure that they've arrived at a position that they can deliver if they commit to it in the negotiations. And they do so in good faith that international law will be upheld. So these will be challenges in the future for, uh, for trade, trade negotiations. 
The situation in the UK is complex, but it's not unique. I mean, as Stephen's been saying, many, most member states have this complex situation of having sub-national levels, the national government, and then the European level. And member states, each member state has a different way of dealing with it. Some are constitutionally bound to put an act through parliament in order to help them arrive at the position that they will demand for trade agreements. Others have a very complex system of negotiation within their sub-regional parliaments. So the UK has an enormous job to do to try and find a better settlement, but they're not unique. And I think they could probably learn quite a lot from uh, governments already doing it. Jenny has got us now looking forward at possible consequences. And I'd like to tie this up by looking forwards, starting with you, I think, Jim. What do you see as the likely outcomes, consequences of this in the short and medium term, thinking in constitutional terms rather than simply in terms of whether there's going to be a deal or whether there's not going to be a deal? Well, whether or not there is a deal, of course, will influence what the constitutional and other outcomes is. It's still quite possible uh, that there will be a slightly fudged deal between the UK and EU in which the UK asserts its sovereignty to do whatever it likes but promises not to do anything very disturbing and the EU accepts that sovereignty but says if you do anything disturbing all sorts of terrible things will happen on the trade front. That's the deal which has been on the table and which may yet emerge. We'll see that the, the mood music at the moment isn't all that encouraging. But if, it's, if there is some kind of deal then I think the really interesting challenges will, will emerge because of the other big thing we haven't talked about that's going on at the moment, which of course is the economic effects of the COVID pandemic. All across Europe, uh, governments will be trying very hard to reconstruct their economies after the damage that's happened. And that will involve some stress, to put it no higher, on the, the state aid rules, which are at the core of these trade issues. The point of state aid rules, of course, is in a well-functioning market to stop uh, one government subsidising its producers at the expense of producers elsewhere. Adding to the, um, uh, by doing that, you add to welfare overall, but you might shift welfare from one place to another. In the post-COVID world, we will be looking at very large quantities of state aids. And I don't think the negotiators have factored that in to the deal they're going to have to do. So to that extent, a slightly fudged deal may be helpful. I think that the effect in the UK remains to be seen. I think the economic effects of COVID may well mask the economic effects of Brexit. And remember, in the end, constitutions are all about allocating power to different actors in the constitutional system. Um, we cannot, in the end, create a constitutional framework which makes something which the people voted for, unwisely in my view, completely impossible. Right? I think Brexit is a very bad idea, uh, but if uh, the UK or indeed some part of the UK wants to leave the EU, our constitutions cannot make that impossible. Uh, so we'll have to find a way through this somehow. Stephen, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in such a difficult position and without, without this clear idea of rules, and actually, I want I want to start with. I can remember when I was first elected. For anybody who thinks that trade policy and politics don't interact, and I was really thinking about this when I was first elected. I remember having my surgeries, and you'd go around and and you get the usual potholes, 
people not being very happy about their bins getting picked up. You get health services, education, all the usual stuff because politics is local. But I can remember I've been talking about talking about the Canadian trade agreement in places like Anstruther Town Hall, Leaven Library, and in the Tesco's in Cooper, because it really because some people were really, really, really interested in this. So separating separating out trade policy and politics is, of course, impossible. But I think as a final thought, as Jim says, the, the, the Constitution should be there to facilitate democracy. It should act as a set of rules by which we all agree. I think Brexit has blow, blown that apart. And maybe, and if, if, if we cross-reference with some other podcasts that we've done, maybe this is where we look at once again our overall Constitution through the lessons that we've learned over the past few years and the pretty hard lessons that we're going to learn and maybe it expresses how we should have um, a system where the rules are a lot clearer so that when decisions are made by people, we've got a clear idea of how that will pan out. And Jenny, would you like a last word? Oh, I completely agree with what Stephen just said there about uh, politics being local because trade policy, you know, as an exclusive competence of the union, it feels very far away from domestic politics sometimes. And we've had enormous challenges trying to communicate the benefits of trade agreements, what it will mean for people's everyday lives and the drawbacks and the, the concerns that we have that we're trying to mitigate. And I think that's going to be a huge challenge for the UK. And I, I hope one that they can perhaps even deal with better than we've been dealing with it, because it's to the detriment of trade policy, uh, the wider that gap feels to be. I think for the future of UK trade policy, I, I kind of alluded at the beginning, but I hope we're, we're keen to see what this new settlement will be. Brexit was such an enormous change in trade policy that uh, we hope it was done for a reason which will allow us to see the, the formation of a new kind of balance between regulatory sovereignty and trade liberalisation. You cannot have a pure version of either one. Trade policy and politics is trying to find a balance. And we think we have the balance almost right, not quite perfect, but almost right in the in the EU, which we are constantly tweaking. And we're keen to see what the how the UK interprets that and and where they want to go. And maybe just on the issue of constitutional oversight and the regulation of trade policy, that is going to be crucial, not just for the devolved nations, which we've talked about, but also the Houses of Parliament, because I think the, the electoral system in the UK and the enormous majority that the government has under first past the post is going to prove quite difficult to ensure that the House of Commons in particular can do its job to oversee trade policy. We've seen already votes where MPs themselves have voted against their own right to have access to documents and to have a greater role in trade policy. They voted against the rights which we fought for for a very long time in the European Parliament and are proud to exercise a lot. I think that's a huge challenge in how you take the legitimacy of trade policy forward. Thank you all. I think you've demonstrated very clearly how trade and constitutions are extremely intimately connected. So thank you to Jim Gallagher, Stephen Gethins and Jenny Dunsmore. And thank you to you for listening.